Uh, last Sunday, we, we began looking at this section of 1 Corinthians 6, uh, where the Apostle Paul is particularly confronting some beliefs and ideas and even slogans that the Corinthian church had been latching onto and was causing them to sin in various ways, but in particularly the sin of sexual immorality. They were latching on to beliefs and using these slogans to justify sexually immoral behavior. And to reiterate a point that we considered last week, why does the Bible spend so much focus on sexual immorality? What, why, why do, wherever you go, Old Testament, New Testament, why is there, there seem to be a particular emphasis on the sin of sexual immorality? Well, some would argue and have argued that the Bible is this inherently restrictive book that it's trying to squash human pleasure and human freedom, that the Bible was written in order to control people, and one of the ways you control people is through controlling their sexuality. And so that is the argument that many make. But could it be, could it be that the Bible is actually after our good? That the Bible is actually after our good when it comes to sex and the sexual relationship and recognizes something that we too often miss. Uh, When you consider... How powerful and how beautiful sex is, and then also when it is corrupted, how damaging and destructive it can be. Whether it be the sin of rape or sexual assaults or adultery or pornography or sex outside of covenantal marriage, all of these things do tremendous physical, emotional, uh, spiritual, and psychological damage to us. And the reason is, is because sex touches something not only deeply, not only physically in us, but also spiritually. There is the utmost of physical and spiritual intimacy that takes place in the sexual act, and it is powerful. And this is why Scripture puts such strong guardrails around it, not because sex is something dirty and shameful, no, because it is something beautiful and powerful. The Bible raises the alarm of sexual sin because beautiful physical, emotional, spiritual, and even creative power is meant to be experienced and exercised in the sexual act. But the problem isn't that the Bible has too low view of sex. The problem is we do. We do. And the great irony, the great irony that happens when we're obsessed with chasing pleasure and self-definition and personal autonomy, is this. Our bodies are not something that we honor and respect, but something we end up degrading. Something that we end up using and abusing and and damaging and, and even altering in order to chase after pleasure and self-fulfillment and self-definition. Like we think my body, my choice upholds the value of the body, but it ends up degrading the value of the body. We think everything is permissible, is a pathway to true freedom, when it's actually the pathway to slavery. And this is what 1 Corinthians 6 reminds us. And it's again into these lies that God's word through the Apostle Paul is going to speak this truth to us this morning. Your body matters, so glorify God with your body. Your body matters, so glorify God with your body. Your body isn't just disposable matter. It isn't something that you're just supposed to use up and abuse and alter and harm and damage in the pursuit of your pleasure and self-definition and autonomy. Rather, your body was given to you for great purpose. Your body was given to you with special honor. And so in light of this truth, here's what Paul tells us again in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. 
Flee, run, get away from it. Don't play around with it. Don't stand and talk to it and, and sort of entertain it. No, flee, run from sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality because every other sin a, a, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Why do you need to run from it? Because sexual immorality, you're sinning against your own body. What does this mean? How can Paul say every other sin is sort of committed outside the body, but this sin is a sin against your body? Aren't there other sins that we do damage to our bodies and sin against our body? What about drug and alcohol abuse or other types of addictions? Well, if we look back to verse 13, and as we saw last week, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. We, we, we are told that our body's purpose is not to pursue sexual sin, but for the Lord, the purpose of the Lord. So your body has a particular and special purpose. Then in verses 15 and 17, we read that our bodies, if you are in Christ, your body has been joined to Christ. You've been joined to Christ's body. You're, you're in union with him through the Spirit, his life in you and your life in him. And so there's a, a way that our bodies have been united to Christ, and we live out that purpose as those who are united to Christ. This being true, when we sin sexually, because it is something that touches us both physically and spiritually, we sin in a particular way against our bodies. But Paul, Paul is not saying that sexual sin is the, sort of the ultimate and worst of all sins. But he is saying there's something unique about sexual sin. You sin against your body in a particularly harmful and damaging way physically and spiritually when you commit sexual sin. Your body matters. Your body matters. This is why we're called to glorify God with our body. And to further drive this point home, Paul is going to use two more images He's going to land this point with actually two positive images about who we are and what it means for our bodies. And so here's the, the two main ideas or two points that he's going to drive home to, to make this point that your body matters. Who lives in you and who owns you? Or who lives in us and who owns us? These two points, again, drive home his overarching theme that your body matters, so glorify God with your body. So we want to look at, I want to look at both of these images. The first, who lives in us? Well, in verse 19, Paul asks this question, don't you know, this is, a, this is the third time that he has used this in this section, don't you know, aren't you aware, did you forget that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, follower of Jesus, child of God. Don't you know your body is holy ground? It's sacred space. It's a temple. And you see, temples were sacred spaces. They were considered holy ground. Why? Because a temple was the place where the divine and the human would meet. Temples were constructed to house the presence of deity, and that space was not common. That space wasn't just average construction. No, that space was set aside special. You didn't just walk into that space the way you walked into someone, uh, some other space. The materials that were used were considered special. It's sacred space, holy ground. The, the grounds and the structure, all of them were to be revered and respected. Now, in our society, we don't see a lot of religious temples. They're not as common. But boy, we do have our temples. Like, if you drive Highway 34 into downtown Lincoln, you will pass the great temple of our state. 
Memorial Stadium. That is holy and sacred ground. Though some would say that the glory has probably departed from that temple, but we, we recognize there are spaces, even in our secular world, that we revere with a particular glory and an honor. And when you step in there, you're, you're like, this is sacred space. This is holy ground. Well, for God's people in the Old Testament, the temple was the sacred of sacred spaces. If you go back and you read in the Old Testament, you, you read that the, the tabernacle as Israel was in the wilderness and then the temple in Jerusalem were the places that were established so that God could dwell with his people. It's, a, it's an incredible reality here to say that God said, I'm going to dwell with you. My presence is going to be with you. And so they constructed a tabernacle and they constructed a temple so that God's presence could be close to them, could be near to them. And the, the temple was built and it was structured as a series of chambers that essentially restricted how close you could get to God. And God's direct presence, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go into there and only one time of year to make atonement for the people. You didn't go into the Holy of Holies haphazardly because if you did, you were struck dead. You you were struck dead because God's holiness, his purity, his power, his otherness was so great, you don't just walk into his presence. I mean, earlier, or in in Exodus 20, uh, before the, the construction of the temple, We read this account where God's presence comes down on the mountain to meet with Moses. And you know what happens to that mountain when God's presence comes on it? Sets the mountain on fire. Shakes it violently. Um, um, Mindy and I are heading to Colorado this summer for a few weeks. And and if you've ever been to Colorado, you you know how mountains are these incredible structures. And you're like, how could anything violently shake that? The presence of God does. The presence of God is so... In, in, it's impressive, it's powerful, it's beautiful, that there, there's, a, there's an awe-struckness to it, if that's a word, that it sets mountains on fire and shakes them. This is the very presence that was housed in the temple. This is the very presence that would meet with the people of God. And, you know, when you consider that the temple was constructed in many ways to, to keep us, sort of keep a distance between us and God. And then if you, you sort of haphazardly walked in the presence of God, you'd get struck down dead. Some may think, well, God's a jerk. Why would he do that? Why would God not allow us near him? Well, consider this. Is, is a king a jerk to allow rebellious people in his presence? Is goodness and beauty and truth it himself, a jerk for not allowing deceits and corruption and wickedness in his presence? Friends, we were made to be in the presence of God. We were created, and at one time we were, we walked in the presence of God without restriction. But guess what? We chose self-definition and self-reliance and pleasure and being our own masters over the presence of God. God's not the jerk. We are. And because of our sin... There is separation. Because of our sin, because we are corrupted, there had to be a separation. And this is God's kindness to us. God wanted to dwell with his people, but also recognize because of our sin there's limitation. But, and don't miss this, the temple held out the possibility of something greater. In the temple, as the people got closer to God, there was this question sort of hanging in the air. Is this all we get? This is all the closer we can come. There, there's a, there's a, a lack here. There's something missing here. 
Is it possible to get near to God? Is it possible to go back to that day when we were in the very presence of God like we used to be? And so the temple held out this longing, this hope for something greater. And the good news of the gospel through Jesus Christ is that longing, that hope has been fulfilled. Through Jesus Christ, you and I who were sinners and who needed separation from God, otherwise the presence of God would strike us dead, through Christ, that temple, that barrier has been torn down, and now that very presence dwells in us. We're not just standing near God. God is dwelling in us. That's how intimate, that's how close we are now. This is the beauty and the power of the gospel. This is the the hope we have in the gospel. And look, no other religion claims that the human body is the temple of God. No other religion claims that that our human bodies can house the presence of God. Because what other religions and other philosophies intuitively sort of recognize, that we're too frail. We're too broken, we're too corrupted, there's something wrong with us, that we're too small in such a way. And they're not wrong to a degree. But here's what they miss. They miss the fullness and the power of the gospel. They miss the extent to which Christ accomplished this plan that not only would we be forgiven and washed clean of our sins, but that we would be dwelling with God. We would be that close, that intimate, that near God that his very presence would dwell in us. Christ has defeated our sin. He's washed us clean. He's removed the guilt and the shame. He's given us his righteousness. Why? So that our bodies could be the temple of God. So that God's very presence could dwell in us. Friends, here's what the world wants to do. The world wants to tell you that the most important thing about you, the most important immaterial reality about you is sort of your desires, your inner desires, or your inner thoughts, your inner emotions, your inner psychology. That, that immaterial part dictates how you should use your body. The gospel speaks a greater word. The gospel says there's something greater, there's a greater immaterial reality that sets the trajectory of how you use your body. The presence of God The gospel speaks a greater word to those who have turned from their sin and put their faith in Christ. The greatest immaterial reality, something greater than your desires. Something greater than your own thoughts or your own psychology. This truth, you have been united to Christ. His life in you, your life in him. You have been forgiven of the guilt and you've been set free from the power of sin. You've been washed from the corruption of sin and God has poured out his Holy Spirit on you. That's the immaterial reality. It defines how you use your body. The the spirit now dwells in you. Look, this makes your body holy ground because where the presence of God dwells is holy ground. Your body matters. Your body matters. So glorify God with your body. Also consider this. The greater the glory, the, the greater the deity, the more sacred the temple Like in Greek and Roman polytheism, the greatest temples were reserved for the greatest gods. And look, if we consider Memorial Stadium, Memorial Stadium is always going to be more sacred than any high school football stadium, no matter how nice it is. Why? Because the glory of what happens in college football is far greater than anything that happens at high school. The greater the glory that dwells there, the greater and more sacred the space. And so friends, if all you live by is your own inner desires and your inner psychology and your inner emotions, 
That is a far, far, far too small a glory to live by. And it's no wonder that those who live by that glory treat their body the way they do. But if the very presence of God, the very presence that set a mountain on fire dwells in you, how sacred is your body? How, how sacred is this space that God has given you, your physical body? And it doesn't matter what type of body you have. It doesn't matter if you are the picture of health or if you are fighting disability and disease. That the Spirit of God dwells in your body makes it holy ground and sacred space. Friends, this also is true if you are in Christ. No matter how sexual sin has either damaged you based on the sin others have done to you or how you've damaged yourself, if you are in Christ, your body is holy ground. It is sacred space. Now, you, need, you may need to turn from sin and remind yourself of that and start treating your body like the sacred space that it is. But if you are in Christ, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. Your body matters. So glorify God with your body. The second image. In addition to who dwells in us, Paul also points out who owns us in verses 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. Now, this statement, I'm going to be honest, this statement carries a lot of punch. There's no way to sugarcoat this. This is slave language. This is slave language that the Apostle Paul is pulling on. He is using this image of one person buying another person to show that we belong not to ourselves, but to God. You are not your own. Someone else has claim on your life. And let's be honest, in our culture, both the extreme individualism and a lot of the sort of the cultural hot button topics in our, our world right now, this kind of language would rub us the wrong way. We don't like language, you're not your own. We like language like live free or die. We, we like the, the lines from the poem Invictus, I'm the master of my own fate, I'm the captain of my own soul. That's what we like. We don't like you are not your own. For, for someone to say that to you, you're like, no way. How, how dare you say someone else owns me, someone else claims me. The good life, the true life, is I am my own master. But, again, as we saw last week, there is a kind of freedom that is actually slavery. Self-reliance, self-definition, and the selfish pursuit of pleasure. To, to live for no, other, no higher good than self is to be enslaved to the desires and the demand that they have to be satisfied. If all you live for is your desire and that inner psychology and those inner emotions that demand to be satisfied, you're not free, you're a slave. There's a freedom that, lives to that leads to slavery, and there's also a slavery that leads to freedom. That might sound like a contradiction in terms. How can slavery lead to freedom? For the one who has no hope, for the one who has lost everything and can't fix anything, Slavery is actually a path to freedom. Let me explain. In Greek and Roman culture, for those who had no other recourse in life, who had lost everything, who had no hope to, to fix what was wrong in their own lives and to, and to make a, a financial place for themselves or to have any sort of stability or to survive on their own, what they would do is they would sell themselves into slavery. They'd sell themselves to become a servant of another. And they for those people that were that destitute and desperate, they recognized who bought you is, makes all the difference. Who, who buys me makes all the difference. If I'm bought by a harsh, heavy-handed master, then my life is going to be hell. My life is going to be degrading. But if a kind and good master buys me, 
buys me out of desperation and degradation, buys me and rescues me from a harsh master, invites me into his home, allows me to serve him and allows me to live for what is good and true and beautiful, loves me as part of his household, welcomes me in so that I might thrive and flourish. Slavery is freedom. Slavery becomes life. And also, when we consider that there is a freedom that is given to us as a gift, as a rescue, when we recognize that true freedom comes not from throwing off all restriction and and pursuing self-reliance and self-definition and selfish pursuit of pleasure, when we recognize that true freedom comes to us as a gift and as rescue, that, that a freedom that is purchased for us that is so great that it leads us to do nothing but say, I am going to follow that person. I'm going to submit my life to this person. I'm going to serve this person. We recognize where true freedom lies. There's a freedom that comes from being purchased, from being bought, from being rescued. And we see that the greatest freedom comes when we live and we serve for something greater than ourselves. There's a story about Abraham Lincoln, it's surely legend but rather than true, but, but it goes like this. Uh, Abraham Lincoln went to a slave market, and there he noted a young African-American woman being auctioned off to the highest offer. He bid on her and won. He could see the anger in the young woman's eyes and could imagine what she was thinking. Another white man who will buy me, use me, and then discard me. As Lincoln walked off with his property, he turned to the woman and said, You're free. Yeah, what does that mean? She replied, means that you're free. Does that mean I can say whatever I want to say? Yes, replied Lincoln, smiling. It means you can say whatever you want to say. Does it mean, she asked incredulously, that I can be whatever I want to be? Yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does it mean, the young woman said hesitantly, that I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, it means you are free and can go wherever you want to go. Then, said the young woman with tears welling in her eyes, I think I'll go with you. Have you come to the place where you are so desperate, you recognize you can't fix what's broken in yourself and the world? You've come to this place of desperation where you need, you know you need rescue. You need someone to come and rescue you out of your helplessness and your desperation. You need someone to come and purchase you out of, out of that desperation. Have you come to this place where you recognize the harshness and cruelty of other masters? The masters that claim to be success and pleasure and wealth and status, but turn on you and harm you and wreck you and destroy you. Have you come to that place where you recognize that the only true freedom comes when we give our lives away and we turn and we follow a greater master? Have you come to that place Have you come to that place where you recognize that the true path to freedom comes when we recognize that we're not our own? To be owned by God, to be owned by God is to be owned by a truly kind master, the one who truly loves and cherishes those who belong to him. If you are in Christ, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. You were purchased out of the slavery of sin. You were purchased out of the harsh and cruel mastery of sin. And not just with any old sort of money or coin. 
You weren't purchased with just the, the, the sort of the, the human sense of purchase. You were purchased with something precious. God spared no expense to purchase you, as 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 tells us. For you know that you weren't redeemed from your empty way of life. For you know you were redeemed from your empty way of life, not with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. Hear me, that, Christ, that God would spare no expense to purchase you body and soul, says your body matters. That Christ would spare, God would spare no expense, that he would willingly give up his son and his shed blood, that Jesus Christ would willingly lay down his life to purchase you out of slavery and sin shows your body, your soul matters. So glorify God with your body. Your body is to be honored. It is holy ground because the Spirit dwells there. Your body matters because Christ has purchased you with his own blood. God the Father loved you so much he sent his Son to purchase you. Your body matters. This also shows that God spared no expense, shows just how great and how glorious he is and how much we owe him how much we owe our allegiance to him, this kind of love, so gracious, so loving, so kind. He has every right to make claims on us. As the great hymn says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my heart, my all. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Don't listen to the lie of sexual sin. Don't listen to the lie that says in order for you to have joy and pleasure, for order you to have worth and value in the eyes of others, you have to give yourself over to sexual sin and gratify sexual desire. Don't listen to that lie. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. God loves you. God has purpose for you. God has redeemed you. God gives you identity. Don't listen to the lie of shame and guilt that says we own you. Your sexual guilt and your sexual shame, they'll try to claim ownership of you. Don't listen to the lie. You've been bought with a price. You belong to God. So glorify God with your body. Your body matters. And this not only goes for us individually, this goes for us together. Here, the Apostle Paul is talking about you individually. The Holy Spirit dwells. Your body is a temple. But earlier in 1 Corinthians, he talks about how we, the church, all of us together, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells among us. So let us be a people Let us be a people who glorify God together. Let us be a people who walk in in sexual purity and turn from sexual immorality together. We are also a people that have been purchased. And so let us live our lives as those who are not our own. We're not our own. We've been called to live for something greater than self. And so let us together Live for something greater than self. Let us together lay down our lives for one another. Let us together lay down our lives to glorify God in our city. Let us us together lay down our lives to go and share the gospel that others may know what it means to be rescued and redeemed and to have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Let us, us together be a people that know our bodies matter. So let us glorify God with them. Amen? Let's pray.